Okay, so it's 1983. Some of you have not been born yet, but I'm a rebellious 18-year-old college student, freshman, and I'm sitting in chapel in, at Arlington Baptist College in Arlington, Texas. And um, to, to their credit, they've come a long way since then, but back then, Arlington Baptist College was a King James only, suit and tie wearing, hair off the ears and off the collar, no movies, no rock music, in the dorm by 11, and that's only scratching the surface, kind of school. And I'm sitting in chapel, and the dean of students, who was actually a friend of my dad's, stands up in chapel and says these words, someone has brought shame upon the name of Arlington Baptist College. Someone has defamed the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to stop. My staff is not going to stop until we find out who has done this. Now, have you ever been so nervous before where you are scared to death and laughing at the same time? That's how I was feeling sitting in the chapel service as an 18-year-old freshman at Arlington Baptist College. The night before, I came in late from a date. I um, heard some of my friends up in their dorm room. They were all laughing. I walked in, and they're all on the telephone back and forth, um, calling a telephone evangelist, a TV evangelist by the name of Gene Scott, who was a cigar-smoking, rock music-playing TV preacher from California who was considered the worst of the worst of false teachers and heretics back in his day. And um, they were trying to call him to invite him to speak at chapel. And uh, these guys were using the, the, the dorm room phones, which went through the school switchboard to call to California. And I'm, listening, I'm watching this and I'm going, these guys are in deep trouble because all these calls are being tracked. I know what, how these people work. Well, I went downstairs to the, to the pay phone because I'm like, there's no way they're tracking that phone. And uh, I called. And I, I got on the air. And uh, my, I'm talking to Gene Scott, me and Gene. And I said, hey, Gene, the guys at Arlington Baptist College, we love you. We want you to come speak in chapel. And I heard the guys upstairs, they're la- they realize I'm on the phone with, with Gene Scott. They're laughing. Um, the, the, and Gene Scott, I hear him laughing on the other end of the phone. This is nationwide, worldwide, wherever this thing went. And he says to me, he says, uh, man, the guys at Arlington Baptist College, he said, listen, son, he said, you, you, you need, to, you, you need to, to talk to your school president about this one. I, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Well, the day after the dean of students made his witch hunt announcement in chapel, uh, I watched one by one as all of my friends were being called into his office and given and giving, handed out, there are a lot of demerits, a lot of work detail. And by the end of the day, I'm sweating bullets going from class to class thinking I've get, I'm getting away with this. And finally, the last class of the day, someone knocks on the door. This lady walks in from the school, the office, and she announces to the class, uh, Brian Bloy, the dean of students, would like to see you in his office immediately. So in shame, I pick up, everybody knows what's going on. I pick up my books and, and go to his office. And here I am, I'm sitting here across from the dean of students, and he asks me the question, have you defamed the name of Arlington Baptist College? No, sir. Have you brought shame upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? No, because I didn't think I had. 
And uh, he looks at me finally and he goes, did you call Gene Scott and invite him to speak in chapel? (laughs) Yes, sir, I did. Well, at that moment, he laid a serious guilt trip on me. I mean, we're talking, he's pulling out Old Testament verses, just laying them on me, pulling them out of context. I mean, and I am just being overwhelmed and flooded by the old school Baptist guilt that I grew up with. And I mean, he's at this moment owning me. And I'm just feeling like the lowest of lowest of lowest lows. And he looks at me then and he says, Brian, here's the deal. You, me and your dad are friends. We go way back. He said, it's clear to me that you really don't want to be at this school. Am I right? And I said, yes, sir, I don't. He says, then why don't we agree, you and I, that you don't come back next semester? (laughs) And I said, sounds good of me. Sounds good to me. Gave me a ton of demerits, lots of work detail. I think I picked up every trash bag or whatever on that campus. But I do remember this, walking back to my dorm and feeling just condemnation. I remember feeling guilt. I remember shame. I remember feeling the same old feelings that had flooded over my heart many, many times before. God hates me. I'm the son of Satan. And, um, and then I remember thinking, oh my goodness, what are the religious elite of this institution going to think of me over the next you know, several weeks as we finish out the semester? What are my friends going to think? What are my professors going to think? What are my parents going to think? I went back to the dorm, called my parents. They actually thought it was really funny. Um, and then, you know, I, then I'm thinking, who in the world ratted me out? Now I'm mad. And I found out it was my roommate. We had a really tough last few weeks of the year together. And to this school's credit, a few years ago, that the president of the school flew, flew here and took me out to dinner and apologized to me for all of this. So I will say that. But have you ever had a moment in your life where you just messed up and you were hit with condemnation from other people? I mean, you were just hit with condemnation and you felt guilt and shame come over you. And I mean, and that, this was a moment that I remember in my life. Con, 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 to condemn means to express complete disapproval of, typically in public. And many of you in this room, you, you, you grew up, you, you know this feeling. If you, had, if you grew up with the kind of religious world that I grew up in, then you know the feeling of always feeling like you're not quite measuring up to not only God's standards, but other people's standards. You, you know the, the feeling that you're constantly missing the mark of approval by the religious crowd around you. And you feel condemned by others, and as a result, you feel guilt and shame. Guilt is the acknowledgement that you have done something wrong. It is the burden of responsibility that we, we, we feel that we know and we know that we have sinned against God or we have violated someone else's standards. Shame, on the other hand, is this remorse or embarrassment experience when we feel that we have let others down and, and we expect to receive their scorn and their ridicule. Dr. Brene Brown, who's an expert on these topics, says guilt feelings focus on what we do, whereas shame feelings focus on who we are, how we look, and how we relate to others. And many of you in this room this morning, you can relate to feelings of guilt and shame. Maybe you have sinned in your past and you just cannot shake the feeling of feeling like you are damaged goods or that you will never, ever be out from the, the condemnation of others. No matter what you do, how much you beg for forgiveness, what, you'll always have that cloud over you. Maybe you feel like no matter what I do, 
I cannot shake the feeling that God is, is just mad at me or that, that there's just no way that he could ever love me, no way he could ever accept me. There's no way he could ever forgive what I have done. Some of you, maybe you are right now, you are living knee deep in sin right now and you feel condemned. You feel guilt and shame, almost to the point of just throwing your hands up in the air and just giving up on God altogether and just saying, what's the use? What's the sense? I, I, I'm just going to keep living this way. Can I tell you, the antidote to condemnation, guilt and shame is grace. The antidote to condemnation, guilt and shame is grace. This morning, I want to look at a, a story of a woman who is simply known in the Bible as the adulterous woman. That's all we know of her. She is the adulterous woman. Who was this woman? Well, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to look at her life. In the eyes of the Jews, she was an appalling, vile sinner. I mean, the Jews would have looked down their noses at this woman. She would have, she would have definitely felt condemned by the Jewish people. In the eyes of the Pharisees, who were the religious elite of the day, she was a pawn. She was a valuable asset to the hypocritical religious leaders at this moment. They were going to use her and her sin to try to trap Jesus so they could arrest him. In the eyes of the law, she was condemned to die. There were, there, there's still many places in this world to this day where adultery is a crime punishable uh, by death. And according to Old Testament law, if she had been found guilty, she would have been stoned to death right there in public. In her own eyes, she was worthless and hopeless. This, this was a woman whose dignity and self-worth were gone. I mean, think about this. this. This woman had been caught in adultery, and her sin was about to be, made, to be made public, and she was about to pay for it publicly. She was a woman that, that had lost all hope. I mean, her, her life was a dysfunctional mess. However, in the eyes of Jesus, she was worthy of grace. Now, what exactly is grace? I, I love Tullian Chavidian's definition of grace. He says, grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Joseph R. Cook says it this way, grace is nothing more nor less than the face that love wears when it meets imperfection, weakness, failure, and sin. The antidote to condemnation, guilt, and shame is Grace. And this undeserving, lost, broken woman was about to become a trophy of God's grace. Look at verse 2 for a moment. Let's dive into the story. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Now, at this moment in Jesus' ministry, everywhere he went, there were crowds. People wanted to be around him. They, they didn't really know what to make of him. But, but he intrigued them. They had never heard a man teach like he did. And so they wanted to hear more of what he had to say. The teachings of the Pharisees, which is what they were used to, sucked the life out of them, just brought guilt and shame on them constantly. However, the teaching of Jesus was life-giving. When you heard it, it just created a, a thirst inside of you that just made you long for more. And this drove the, the religious leaders of the day just insane. They were eaten up with jealousy and disdain for Jesus. They, they felt threatened by him and his teaching. They, these guys were, were all about keeping the rules of religion. They were, the, they were the enforcers of Jewish law. 
And so they didn't roll with all of this teaching and talk about God's love and God being a loving God and, and about God's forgiveness and grace and mercy. They, was, they hated that every time they tried, to, they tried to debate Jesus, Jesus got the better of them. And so they came up with this plan. Look at verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses command, commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? And they said to test him, they said, and they, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, this is a total setup. They, they wanted to bait Jesus so that they could bring charges against him. They, they want to they find a reason to, uh, to arrest Jesus. Now, from the outset, you look at the story and you go, man, Jesus is in a real pickle here. Because if he says stone her, then he loses the reputation of being the friend of sinners. The common people might have abandoned him for siding with the Pharisees. But if he says, no, don't stone her, then in the eyes of the Pharisees, he takes a side against the seventh commandment, which does say, do not commit adultery. And he also sides against Old Testament law that says that that. that uh, a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, or, or if it's a woman, the other way, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Jesus could have been arrested for going against the law. And so the religious leaders think in their mind, we, have finally, we finally have this man cornered. We finally have this guy. But look at what Jesus does. Jesus bends down and he writes with his finger in the ground. Now, this is the only time in Scripture that we see Jesus writing, and we have no idea what he wrote. Maybe, I mean, maybe he exposed their own sins in the, in the dirt. Maybe he wrote Scripture in the dirt. Maybe he just sat there and scribbled. I maybe mean, he did stick figures. We have no idea. Maybe just messing with him. We really don't know what he was doing. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know in verse 7 that the Pharisees demanded an answer. It says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, this is pure brilliance. I mean, honestly, Jesus stunned them. Can you imagine how frustrated these guys must have been? Instead of passing judgment on the woman, Jesus passes judgment on them. He didn't pass judgment on her, but he also didn't stand in her corner. What he did do was he upheld Jewish morality. It was required by Jewish law that the accuser cast the first stone. So Jesus challenged their own morality. Guys, those of you, the one of you who is without sin, who has never sinned before, start throwing rocks. Now, can you imagine this picture in your mind? Take, your, take yourself, if you could, just put, your, put yourself in this scene for a moment. Can you imagine the frustration that the Pharisees must have been feeling? I mean, they have come to the party with rocks in their hands. They're ready to start throwing. How about all of the people around? I mean, they're probably ready to see a good stoning. I mean, there's a reason why cars slow down when there's a car wreck. We all want to see what's going on. What about this woman? I mean, she probably had no idea what to make of the situation. She had to be terrified. She knows that this is her her last moment on earth. 
She's anticipating the pain of being, of being pelted to death with rocks. This is, this is a horrifying way to die. And where's Jesus in the midst of all of this? He is bent over drawing in the dirt. And then one of my favorite moments in the Bible begins to unfold. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now put yourself in the crowd for just a moment if you could. Can you hear the rocks dropping? Can, can, can you hear the confused crowd quietly dispersing? Can you, can you hear the disgusted mumbling of the Pharisees who are now walking away? And now it's just Jesus alone with the woman, just the two of them. And she is covered in guilt and shame. The weight of all of this causes her to actually fall to the ground. And verse 10 says, Jesus reaches down and he stood her up. And he asks her the question that we're gonna fo- we want to focus on this morning. Woman, where are they? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you. See, the only person that had the true right to pick up a rock and throw it was actually Jesus. Because he was the only sinless person in the crowd. But he asks her a question. Has no one condemned you? And her response, no one, Lord. Now, this moment always gets really looked over when we read this passage of Scripture because in her response, I want to I point something out that I think is crucial to the story. In her response to Jesus, she confesses him as Lord. She confesses him as Savior. See, this was no ordinary rabbi or teacher or prophet that she was dealing with. She had just now, she's recognized him, she has confessed that Jesus is Lord. And I believe that this was her moment of salvation. And Jesus' response is epic. Rather than pick up a rock to carry out the sentence connected with her guilt and condemnation, here's what he, he's, he looks at her and he says, then neither do I condemn you. In other words, he just took a stamp and put it on her life that said, not guilty. Not guilty. Now, how in the world could Jesus say that? How could he do that? How could he say this? She was guilty. She had committed adultery. She had broken Jewish law. The law said stone her. But Jesus said not guilty. See, the reason why Jesus could say that to her because, was because he knew that he was, about, he was getting ready to take all of her guilt to the cross with him. Then Jesus says these classic words to her. He says, go and from now on sin no more. Jesus doesn't overlook her sin. He certainly doesn't excuse it. He doesn't pretend that it never happened. He actually addresses it. He says, woman, which was a term of of affection. He said, woman, go and sin no more. Now, what what exactly did Jesus do for this woman at this moment? Well, the first thing he did is he took her guilt and he replaced it with grace. According to Jewish law, this woman deserved to die. According to God's word, every one of us in this room deserves to be judged and condemned because we are all guilty of sin. But instead, we've been offered, we've been offered grace. We've been offered forgiveness. God has provided a way through his son Jesus to take our guilt and to replace it with grace. 
Listen to what happens when you receive God's gift of salvation and you actually become a child of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, that sin is no longer your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. You see, we have a difficult time understanding grace sometimes. I mean, if you live in the state of Georgia and you mess up, guess what happens? You pay for it. But when you live in the state of grace, your sins have already been paid for. That doesn't mean that we've been given a license to sin, and it certainly doesn't mean that there aren't natural consequences to sinful decisions. But what it does mean is that the cross was God's way of saying to all of us that even though you deserved, I deserved to be on that cross, my son Jesus took your place because I love you, and I don't want to see you die eternally. I don't want to see you be separated me from all of eternity. So I'm going to send Jesus to pay for your sins so I can offer you a chance to have the words not guilty stamped over your life. I love how Romans 8.1 describes this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The antidote to condemnation, the antidote to guilt and shame, his grace. The second thing he did for her is he removed her shame and restored her self-worth. Listen, Jesus could have rebuked this woman. He could have pulled her aside after everyone had left and, I mean, given her a tongue lashing. Actually, he could have stoned her to death, but instead he restored her. You see, some of you have grown up this way and some of you are still this way. You see Jesus as this angry God, this angry man who stands before you all the time with nothing more than a handful of rocks. And many of you in this room are God's children, but you you, you live with this constant shame over something that you've already confessed and you have been forgiven of. Dr. Brene Brown says shame is an intense, painful feeling that we are unworthy of love or belonging. And some of you, you can relate to that definition of shame. You feel unworthy of love or belonging. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 17 says. Therefore, if, is, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love that. In Christ, you're a new creation. In Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 4, 32, you have been forgiven. Romans 3, 24, in Christ, you have been redeemed. Romans 5, 11, in Christ, you've been reconciled to God. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, in Christ, you have faith, hope, and love. Philippians 4, 7 says, in Christ, you have the peace of God. Romans 8, 39, in Christ, we have the love of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that because of God's great love for us, he gave us his son so that he might show the immeasurable riches of of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Does that sound like a God who is standing in front of you with a handful of rocks wanting to condemn you? Some of you are saying, yeah, but Brian, you you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea my sin. And you're right, I probably don't. But I do know that when you're a child of God, and you are in Christ, you've been forgiven. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross covers the stain of your sin. 
It's actually been removed from your record. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. This woman, this adulterous woman was a mess. And Jesus took her shame and restored her self-worth. He also took her brokenness and he made her whole. This was a woman whose soul had been deformed. Jesus took it and reformed it. And just like he did for this woman, I want you to know that Jesus has the ability to meet you at the point of your brokenness and to begin to put the pieces of your life back together. He can take, he alone can take broken things like our lives and he can make them whole again. Some of you, listen, some of you are living in sin right now. You need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. Repentance is a change of mind that is so powerful that it actually changes the course of the direction of your life. You might be saying, I just don't know if God can forgive me. Here's what King David wrote after he had been confronted about his adultery and and his murder. Psalm 57, 17, he says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So, Westridge Church, I ask you this morning, who has condemned you? I know that some of you are eaten up with guilt and shame. If you are truly a Christian, if you are truly a son, a daughter of God, if you are truly in Christ, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is time for some of you to release that guilt, to release that shame, and to accept God's grace. It is, it is time for, for you to embrace what Jesus has done for you and to begin to live out who you are in Christ. I want to finish with a story that I shared with our students a few months ago. After I left that school, I walked away from God's plan for me to go into full-time ministry temporarily. I, I took, up, took a baseball scholarship at another school and and, uh, and I actually switched ma- majors. And I, to be honest with you, I just embraced my sinful behavior. I, I just f- walked away. And you talk about feeling guilt. You talk about feeling shame. But this time it was the true consequences of my sin. I started dating this girl my freshman year of college who had, I actually dated for five and a half years. And, and you know how it is when you date someone for a really long time and you actually think you're going to marry that person or whatever? You know, you, you, you eventually start saying, hey, tell me about what you did in the past. Tell me what you, about you did in the past. And, and so you start kind of opening up your closet and you say, oh, here are all my skeletons just so here's everything I've done. Well, after my junior year of college, uh, this girl and I broke up for the summer. And she decided to start sharing all of my skeletons with all of my friends and her family. And there was one particular thing that happened to me my um, freshman year of college that I was extremely ashamed of. It was, uh, I, remember going, I remember going down to the altar of not only my college but, but church many times and just pleading with God, Lord, please forgive me of this. Please. And I, I couldn't shake the guilt. I could not shake the shame of it. I mean, seriously, I just, I just couldn't. And one night I was in my parents' house. Uh, again, I'm home from college. This girl and I are broken up, and the phone rings. And um, I, I grab the phone, and it's a friend of mine. And he says to me, hey, listen, um, I, I need you to know that um, this girl that you've been dating for uh, the last three years or so, she is telling everybody all of your, your junk, 
and she's telling people this story. She's told her mom this. She's told her parents. She's told friends. I mean, man, thank the Lord there was no Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram back then because it would have gone viral. But it was viral enough for me. Her mom was calling me a hypocrite. It was, it was just like I'm on the phone going like it was like all the condemnation, all the guilt, all the shame. It just flooded back over me once again. And I hung up the phone and um, it was evening and my parents were already in bed and I decided I, I, I need to come clean with my mom and dad on this because I got to tell somebody. I, 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 need, I just got to talk here and, and uh, this is going to get to them and I'd rather tell them myself. So I walked out of my room across the hall and I knocked on my parents' door and my dad said, come in. And um, they were in bed already. I flicked the light on and they, 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 they sat up and I said, listen, um, I need to tell y'all something. I just got off the phone with so-and-so and, and um, th- here's what's happened. And um, I want to tell you what I've done. And I remember my dad saying to me these words. He said, Brian, I don't want you to say another word to me. There's absolutely nothing that you could tell me right now that is going to make me feel any different about you. Nothing you could say will make me love you less. Don't tell me. And I said, Dad, I need to tell you. And my dad said, I don't want to hear it. God's forgiven you, and so have I. In other words... I know that you have some accusers. I know that you're struggling with guilt and shame. But Brian, because you are my son, I don't condemn you. Now I want to tell you something. It was the first time in my life that I really believed that I understood the concept of grace. I deserved to be rebuked. I deserved to be yelled at. I, deserved, I thought I deserved a few stones to be thrown at me. But my earthly father was not throwing He wasn't given out condemnation. He was given out grace. And I went back to my room and I felt, I just, I laid in bed and it was like the shame, the guilt, and the condemnation. I just felt it just fall off of me. Because I knew that not only was my earthly father not condemning me, But for the first time, I think I really grabbed hold of the fact that my heavenly father wasn't either. And I want to tell you something. It was a turning point in my life. It was a turning point in my life. That moment of grace was the beginning of my journey back to Christ. The antidote to condemnation and guilt and shame is grace. Now, My mom called me the next day at work and said, I'd like to know what you did. (laughs) She was laughing. I laughed. I actually told her. She said, I forgive you. Some of you this morning feel like the adulterous woman. Um, Can I tell you something? We are all the adulterous woman. All of us. Maybe what you need this morning, more than anything else, is you just need forgiveness. God will not deny a broken, repentant spirit. And God offers grace. But he also says to you, stop sinning. 
stop your sinning. With God's strength and God's power, sin is no longer your master. Stop sinning. Maybe you cannot let go of the guilt and shame you feel, even though you know it's been confessed, it's been forgiven, it's been paid for. Listen, start taking God at his word. If he's not condemning you, then stop condemning yourself. It doesn't matter who is standing in front of you with rocks. You let Jesus be your defender. If you've never received God's gift of salvation and forgiveness, I want you to know grace is being extended to you right now. You don't deserve it. It's nothing that you've earned. God's offering it. I want us to bow our heads for a moment. If you have never truly received God's gift of grace, I I want you to know that you do stand condemned. Apart from Jesus, apart from being in Christ, we're all condemned. We are all the adulterous woman, every one of us. But Jesus offers you the same grace that he offered to, to this woman years and years ago. And what he wants is he wants you to receive it. He wants you to confess that he's the son of God, that he's your savior. So with our heads bowed, would you pray with me if that's where you are? Lord Jesus, at this very moment, I receive into my life what I could never earn, grace, forgiveness, salvation. I receive it by faith. What Jesus did for me on the cross made this available to me. And instead of me trying to earn something I could never earn, I receive what you're offering to me. Undeserved, unmerited. But Lord, I'm extremely grateful. And I say yes to Jesus. And I ask for your forgiveness. And I ask you to be my savior. If that's what you just did this morning, head still bowed, would you take out your connection card and take it out to the help center? We want to help you to take your next step with Christ. I'm going to do something I don't do a lot of in this church. Um, I'm going to jump off this stage for a moment because I think some of you need to, you need to let go of some condemnation. You need to let go of some guilt and shame. It's been around your shoulders for too long. It's been this weight on you that's just burying you. Can I, it's already been paid for. The, 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 when you receive Jesus Christ to be your savior, the words not guilty were stamped across your life. But we have an accuser, Satan, who keeps wanting to bring it back up to you. He, keep want, he keeps wanting to dog you with it. And it's time for you to let it go and start living out who you are in Christ. Some of you, you are a Christian, but you continue, you're just continuing to choose to live in sin. Listen, I, if you will come to Jesus and just put it down in front of him and confess it, I, let me tell you what you'll receive. He will pick you back up. He'll shake the dust off of you, and he will say to you, I do not condemn you. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. And that's what some of you need to do this morning. I want to open up these steps for whatever it is that God's putting on your heart to do. If you just need me to hug you, I'll be down here, okay? 
I'm just going to, I'm going to turn you over to, to one of our prayer counselors because quite honestly, I won't be able to hear anything you're saying to me. They're going to be singing. But some of you, this is your moment. It's your moment to cast it all off, to repent, to whatever it is that you need to do. I want us to stand quietly. Lord Jesus, would you engage this moment? Holy Spirit, would you engage this moment? And would you help us to be bold, to do whatever it is you're calling us to do? You can do it at your chair, do it at your seat. I just ask that you just do what, just, just grab God at his word and let it go. Grab God at his word and confess it, whatever it is it is, whatever it is. We're all the adulterous woman, all of us. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.